Hi there, and welcome to Vineyard Church, Delaware County's podcast. My name is Michael Hansen. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I am so glad that you have joined us for this week's message. I'm going to have a little bit more to say at the end, but for now, enjoy the teaching. We have a um, a special speaker tonight. She's been on staff here over 14 years. She oversees our peer counseling ministry, and she's also just a super support and nurturer to our entire staff. So please uh, join me welcoming and make her feel welcome, Sandy Hutchison. Okay, let's see if I can do this. Wow, as everyone has said, my name is Sandy, and I, um, I've been around a long time, and I'm a widow of eight years, and have three beautiful children, and they have amazing families, and my families have given me five awesome grandkids um, from the ages of almost three to 18, and they're my great joy. So that's me. When Michael asked me to speak, I was reminded of what a great sense of humor God has, because... (laughs) I have to confess that the book of Ecclesiastes is hands down my least favorite book in the Bible. (laughs) I've studied in small groups a couple times and have still felt foggy about it. Does anybody else find this book confusing, disjointed, depressing? (laughs) For that reason, I have loved the fact that we're doing this series because each sermon I've heard has helped me better understand what I've not been able to wrap my head around in the past. Despite the fact that this book has been hard for me to absorb, I believe the Lord has given me something he'd like me to share with you today. So here's what I've gotten from Ecclesiastes so far. Life is hard. Life is unpredictable, like the wind. Life is pointless without an eternal perspective. We try to control our lives and the lives of those around us, but we can't. And then we die. Awesome. (laughs) So what I've noticed the last few weeks is that the teacher is starting to turn a corner. He still says that life is hard, unpredictable, pointless without God, uncontrollable, and ends in death but he's starting to guide us toward ways that will make our lives matter. So I invite you to open your Bible, your phone app, or look at the screens as we look at Ecclesiastes 7, parts of 1 through 14. But before we read, let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit. I pray you would fill me Give me clarity of speech and mind. Allow me to honor you in everything I say. As we talk about this hard topic, what's a hard topic for many, I pray grace. Grace over this room. 
for those in the room who are grieving right now, come extra near. Rest on anyone who needs your comfort. Peace, Jesus. Bring your peace to this place. Amen. So my prayer has probably given you just a little bit of warning that we're going to dive into some deep waters. There are five things that I'm going to share with you today. But first, let's read our passage, starting in verse 1. A good reputation is more valuable than costly perfume, and the day you die is better than the day you were born. Better to spend your time at a funeral than a party. After all, everyone dies, so the living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for sadness has a refining influence on us. A wise person thinks a lot about death, while a fool thinks only about having a good time. And then in verse 10, don't long for the good old days. This is not wise. Wisdom is even better when you have money. Both are a benefit as you go through life. Wisdom and money can get you almost anything, but only wisdom can save your life. Accept the way God does things, for who can straighten what he has made crooked? Enjoy prosperity while you can, but when hard times strike, realize that both come from God. Remember that nothing is certain in this life. So first I want to focus on verse 2, which again says, It is better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. After all, everyone dies, so the living should take this to heart. So our current culture focuses primarily on how to accomplish more and stay entertained. Wisdom and the teacher would say there's a better way. First, I want to clarify what the teacher is not saying. He is not trying to tell us that being productive or entertained is bad. Through everything we've learned in earlier chapters, the teacher has encouraged us to enjoy life. And we know that Jesus was both a hard worker and loved a good party. James 1.17 says that every good and perfect gift comes from God, who is Father of lights. We have a good and a generous Father. Both good and hard experiences in our lives have potential to be rich gifts from God. The good he gives us to celebrate him and the hard he gives us to make us more like him. What the teacher is saying here is that we learn more through a funeral than a party. That when life ends or is about to end, absolutely everything comes into focus. The things that don't really matter suddenly seem empty, pointless. A funeral reminds us to ask, when it's my turn, what will my life have been worth? What will people say about me? Will you let death teach you the limitations of your life? Will you let it reshape your goals, your attitudes, the things you long for and work for and pray for? Will you ask Jesus to move you away from the distractions of this world and empower you to create a spiritual legacy for those who come after you? As I mentioned, I'm a widow. 
My husband and I were married 33 years when he died suddenly of heart failure at the age of 53. I was at my daughter's house uh, watching my young granddaughters and came home to find him. It was awful, it was traumatic, and it changed my life forever. My children, extended family, and this wonderful church body, many of you, came around me, held me up, planned a beautiful memorial service to honor my Brian. This room filled with people who loved me and loved my husband over the course of our rich life together. So today, I wanna share a few things I think back on when I think of Brian's funeral. These are Sandyisms or proverbs in my own words. <laughs> so stay tuned. Um, number one, a simple lifestyle is better than one that is overly full. For the first 15 years of our marriage, Brian and I were poor. And I could repeat that last word. We were poor. I agree that the te- with the teacher that it's better to have wisdom and money. <laughs> but as verse 11 says, <laughs> yeah, so there was much less stress <clears throat> in our married life once we had a little financial cushion. But if you need to choose between investing in relationships versus oh, being over busy or collecting stuff, Please choose time. A simple life is better. Brian worked hard to take care of our family. But after years of crazy overtime, eventually he learned that investing in our family and our friends was better. And when I think back over our time together, it's the simple things that I always look back on with fondness. Um, we'd put our kids to bed early. We'd, uh, I'd light a candle and put out what the fancy dishes, and Brian would grill a steak, and we'd just sit and talk. And as we got older and the kids were raised, we'd pour a bowl of cereal, maybe even fancy cereal, and, and we'd watch our favorite TV show. And we loved to take walks together. We would walk our dogs and talk with neighbors as we, as we were walking. And Brian was always known in the neighborhood as the coffee guy because he had a travel mug in one hand and a dog leash in the other. <laughs> so it's the simple things that bring us life. Number two, a good reputation that comes from strong character and loving others is better than one gained through success and status. Let me repeat that. That's a long sentence. A good reputation that comes from strong character and loving others is better than one gained through success and status. So remember verse one, a good reputation is more valuable than costly perfume. Brian's life bore the fruit of a good reputation and a quiet life of service. Is anyone here who knew him remembers my husband had his flaws, which I was honest, he didn't do a very good job of hiding. (laughs) But he was a good man. 
He was truthful, sometimes to a fault, a hard worker, tenderhearted, and faithful to me and God. He lived a life of humility rather than one of self-promotion. He'd do anything for anyone, and he worked incredibly hard to take care of me and our family. At his memorial, I heard story after story of small acts of kindness. Some were things I wasn't even aware of. Choose service over status. Number three, a big life is better than a small one, which sounds the opposite of what I just said a few minutes ago, but stick with me. If the last few years have taught us one thing, it's that relationships can be messy and engaging with others can be uncomfortable and sometimes just feel risky. But I want to encourage you that working at relationships is worth it. Brian and I enjoyed an active church life at four local churches over our married life. And there were people who attended his memorial service from all of them. Our life was relationally big. I had the privilege of being surrounded by new friends, lifelong friends and family. I can't say how much each face, each hug, each tear meant to me that day and in the months and years to come. Community refines and enriches our lives. It was Brian that taught me the value of a big life. Much to my chagrin as a devoted introvert, Brian was a constant initiator and a wonderful at bridge building. When my kids' favorite memories of their dad was watching him talk with new acquaintances or strangers, and he would say, he'd stick his hand out, introduce himself, and say something like, your last name is Smith. I know a Smith family in such and such place. I wonder if you guys are related. And of course, I'm exaggerating just a little bit, but not much. So my teenage kids would cover their faces in embarrassment. But as ridiculous as that sounds, it opened doors to conversations. Our home was always open, again, thanks to my husband. Here's where I want to remind myself and you of verse 10. Don't long for the good old days. This is not wise. My man was not a super Christian. He was just a normal guy who struggled like all of us do. And what I'm sharing about him is the accumulative effect of his life, his legacy, The teacher's right that it is not wise to share for days gone by. First, because we can't go back. Eventually, in order to have a fulfilled life, we have to move forward without the one we loved. And secondly, our memories become less trustworthy over time. Our natural tendency is to gloss over the hard stuff and memorialize the good. During the open mic at the service um, for my husband, I heard from my son-in-law how much Brian's welcome into our family meant to him. Next, it was one of the boys in our neighborhood, all grown up. He honored Brian for the ways he welcomed and loved him and fed him. 
Brian's big heart and generosity changed the trajectory of that boy's life and enriched our family as well. Please, choose a big life. Number four, a life of authentic faith is better than one that looks good on the outside. I think Jesus called that a whitewashed tomb. My daughter often says that she learned the power and witness of a transformed life through our messy family. Over the course of his lifetime, Brian grew kinder, more patient, and most importantly, more intimately connected to Jesus. I think James sums up what I'm trying to say here best. We're gonna read James 3, starting in verse 13. If you are wise and understand God's ways, Prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying, for jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. And in verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. James is saying that character matters. He exhorts us to confess jealousy, the temptation to self-promote, and encourages us to repent or turn away from attitudes that aren't of him so that we are free to serve quietly in humility as unto God. There's a saying we use around here a lot, come as you are and you'll be loved, but don't stay as you are. However, a transformed life is not accomplished through self-effort or by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps phrase I say when I feel myself moving toward self-effort is that Jesus doesn't want me to be a good girl. He wants me to be his girl. Guys, I'm going to let you translate that for yourselves. Our transformation is a miracle, a work of the Holy Spirit that comes through supernatural exchanges, continually opening our hands to God and asking him to change us. And the result of those daily, sometimes hourly interactions with God will be increased intimacy and communion with Jesus, which over time will move you toward an increased dependence on him. And the natural outpouring of your love and need for him will be obedience to him. So I wanna read a little bit out of a story um, that has impacted how I walk with Jesus. Uh, the book that I'm reading from is called All the Light We Cannot See. And I wanna warn you that it is a lovely book, but it is sad. The story is set in a port city in the Northwest of France during World War II. And what I'm going to, to read to you about is a eight-year-old girl named Marie Lar, who's gone blind. Her father, a spy for the Allies, is preparing her for possible survival without him. He does this first 
by building a model of their city for her so that she can braille it, she can touch it, and then become familiar with her surroundings. So I promise I'll read quickly. Marie's model of the city smells only of dried glue and sawdust. Its streets are empty, its pavement static. To her fingers, it serves as little more than a tiny, insufficient facsimile. Her father persists in asking Marie Lara to run her fingers over it and recognize different houses, the angles of the streets. And one Tuesday, when Marie Lara has been blind for almost a year, her father walks her to the edge of the Jardin des Plantes. Here, ma chérie, is the path we take every morning through the cedars, up ahead to the grand gallery. I know Papa. He picks her up and spins her around three times. Now, he says, you're going to take us home. Her mouth drops open. I want you to think of the model, Marie. But I can't possibly. I'm one step behind you. I won't let anything happen. You can have your cane. You know where you are. I do not. You do. Exasperation. She cannot even say if the gardens are ahead or behind. Calm yourself, Marie, one centimeter at a time. It's far, Papa, six blocks at least. Six blocks is exactly right. Use logic. Which way should we go first? The world pivots and rumbles. Crows shout, brakes hiss. Someone to her left banks something metal with what might be a hammer. She shuffles forward until the tip of her cane floats in space. The edge of a curb, a pond, a staircase, a cliff. She turns 90 degrees, three steps forward. Now her cane finds the base of a wall. Papa, I'm here. Six paces, seven paces, eight. The bell tied to the handle of a shop door rings and two women come out, jostling her as they pass. Marie Lord, Lord drops her cane and begins to cry. Her father lifts her up, holds her to his narrow chest. It's so big, she whispers. You can do this, Marie. She cannot. Tuesday after Tuesday, she fails. She leads her father on six-block detours that leave her angry and frustrated and farther from home than when they started. But in the winter, to Marie Lars' surprise, she begins to get it right. She runs her fingers over the model in the kitchen, counting miniature benches, trees, lampposts, doorways. Every day, some new detail emerges. Each storm drain, park bench, hydrant of the model has its counterpart in the real world. Marie brings her father closer to home before making a mistake. Four blocks, three blocks, two. And one snowy Tuesday in March when he walks her yet a nut to another new spot, very close to the bank of the Seine, spins her around three times and says, take us home. She realizes that for the first time since they began this exercise, dread has not come up her gut. Instead, she squats on her heels on the sidewalk. Calm yourself. Listen. Cars splash along streets. She can hear snowflakes tick and patter through the trees. She can hear the metro hurtling beneath the sidewalk. She hears the clacking of branches, the 
the narrow stripe of gardens behind the gallery of paleontology. This, she realizes, must be the corner of her street. She begins to walk six blocks, 40 buildings, 10 tiny trees in a square, one centimeter at a time. Approaching on the left is the open ironwork fence of the garden, its thin spars like the bars of a great birdcage. Across from her now, the bakery, the butcher, the delicatessen. Safe to cross, Papa? It is. Right, then straight. They walk up their street now. She's sure of it. Soon they're outside their building. Marie Lar finds the trunk of a chestnut tree that grows past her fourth floor window. It's bark beneath her fingers. An old friend. Then, in half a second, her father's hands swing her up, and Marie Lar smiles, and he laughs, a pure, contagious laugh, one she will try to remember her whole life, father and daughter, turning in circles on a sidewalk in front of their apartment house, laughing together while snow sifts through the branches above. So by repeatedly yielding to the father's instruction, and finding safety and reassurance in his presence, Marie was able to do what she never thought she could. Which brings me back to the journey my papa has taken me on. I've learned some things during the last eight years since Brian's funeral. Number one, a life invested in relationship, including Christian community, provides incredible support when you need it the most. I've learned the great value of family, friendships, and rich fellowship as I've needed to learn for the first time to live on my own and make decisions for myself. My life is richer and I feel secure and loved in great part because of this church family. And here's my plugs, plug for small groups. I truly don't know what I would have done during those first years without my people. If you need connected to a group, please ask somebody. Number two, a life with Jesus as my partner, my husband, is rich and fulfilling and full of joy, even if I miss my strong, bright, fun, loving husband every day. It's taken me many years and a lot of time with Jesus to be able to say that. But by walking with my papa right behind me, first one centimeter at a time, then day by day, and month by month, and year by year, I am no longer afraid. Like Marie from our story, I can truly say, I can do this. Life is good. For those who are missing someone right now, are enduring something really hard. Please take it from one who has lived it. His grace truly is sufficient. The worship team would like to make their way up or onto the stage. This would be a good time to do that. So finally, number three, a life of increasing surrender to Christ is better than one trying to control circumstances or second-guess him. Verses 13 and 14 say, Accept the way God does things, for who can straighten what he has made crooked? 
Enjoy prosperity while you can, but when hard times come, realize that both come from God. Remember that nothing is certain in this life. The teacher is warning us here that it is foolish to succumb to the temptation to shake our fist at God, or as I call it, get my feelings hurt by what the Lord allows to pass through his hands. It puts a wedge between us and him that we create, and it doesn't allow us to receive the peace and comfort he has for us. The teacher encourages us to choose a better way by looking at our circumstances from the perspective of who God is. All-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign, kind, and who we are, his children. So, how do we do this? We're back to verse two. The need to put the good party into proper perspective and choose to live honestly with open hands to God. By making continual exchanges, we grow in our faith. Our prayer can sound something like this. Lord, I give you my fear of the future, my anxiety, my hopelessness. Help me to remember how big and capable you are. Bring me your perfect peace. And then wait for it. Danny, our founding pastor, always said, never leave the Lord's presence empty-handed. And as a very anxiety-prone person, I promise that I've practiced this. And over time, you can learn to develop faith muscles that will allow you to increasingly trust that the Lord will give you grace to get to a better place. He longs to do this for all of us. So after maneuvering this hard and crooked path and learning many lessons along the way, it is now my greatest joy to walk others through these life-changing journeys as well. I have the privilege of helping people connect to our life support ministries and oversee our peer counseling ministry. I know enough of your stories to know that many of you have lost loved ones to death, divorce, estrangement. Others are battling terminal or ongoing illnesses, mental health issues like depression and anxiety. Please know that you don't need to suffer alone. I would love to connect you to help. Please reach out. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope that what you heard has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and to contact us, go to vcdc.org. We'll bless you. Have a wonderful week.